Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and this is the second of two episodes produced to celebrate Human Rights Day. And today I'm very pleased indeed to be speaking with Lord Alf Dobbs. Alf is a former MP, he's a member of the House of Lords and he is a tireless campaigner for the rights of immigrants and asylum seekers, and in particular, the rights of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Alf, how are you doing? Are you well? Well, Andy, good, good morning to you, and thank you for having me on this. Yes, I'm absolutely fine. Good, good, and it's a real pleasure to have you on. Alf, our podcast, it's not only for social workers, but it's also for people who are interested in the really wide range of issues that social workers deal with in practice, and also the issues that social workers campaign to see changed at the political level. So supporting refugees and people seeking asylum, it's a key role for social workers. However, it's a fairly niche one, and many people may not know a great deal about it. So I'm just going to provide a, a very brief context for the listeners. Uh, the law the law affecting immigration and asylum, it's UK-wide, and we're going to get into this in a bit of detail later, but it, it applies across Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. Unaccompanied asylum-seeking children under 18 have special protections under law, and there is a long-standing role for social workers in undertaking age assessment to protect those rights, and unaccompanied asylum-seeking children are placed in local authority care. In addition to supporting unaccompanied asylum-seeking children, social workers are also increasingly working with individuals who have no recourse to public funds under the government's hostile environment policy, which aims to make life very difficult for individuals who are unable to document a legal right to remain in the UK, or to put it in the words of Theresa May back in 2012 during her time as Home Secretary, the aim is to create here in Britain a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants. Alf, social work has a really rich tradition of recognising the importance of lived experience. You yourself were a child refugee, so I understand you came to the UK from Prague in the former Czechoslovakia. How did your experience shape your career, uh, your your worldview and, and the work that you do today? Well, I came, I came on a kinder transport uh, at the age of six in July 1939 to escape the Holocaust. Uh, and I suppose, I suppose, although I was very lucky in, in, in that my father had escaped earlier and my mother eventually um, eventually got out at the last minute, having been refused permission to leave. Nevertheless, I was lucky in the sense that I had much more stability in my life than maybe some other refugees have had. And I, I'm aware of that. Nevertheless, um, having such an experience, saying goodbye to my mum, not knowing if I'd ever see her again, um, with strangers on a train, two days of travel, another country, and I had to learn English. I didn't speak any English, uh, so these are all things that I had to I had to get used to. So I suppose they must have had more of an influence on me than, than perhaps I realised I realised in, in in more recent years. Uh, so I'm conscious of that, and of course I'm bound to have an emotional involvement involvement with with refugees. Although I'll put it this way, that because I came to Britain as an unaccompanied child refugee. It's been a bit more difficult for the government to be too critical of unaccompanied child refugees because it would seem like a personal attack on me. So that's been politically helpful. 
not that I talk much about this till the media picked it up and and used it as part of the part of the story. And when did that pick up? Because you did you you entered politics in the in the early seventies, isn't that right? In terms of in terms of actually elected office, is that correct? Uh, well, I, I was I, I was I was a local councillor in Paddington in London in um, from nineteen seventy one onwards. But th- then I was. I had a go at Parliament several times, but but eventually I got elected as MP for South Battersea in 1979. That coincided with Margaret Thatcher becoming Prime Minister. Okay, so that was a, a mixed blessing, I suppose. Um. Well, it, it 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 was a mixed blessing to 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 win. Uh, to, well, I I held a Labour seat just uh, by 300 votes. Uh, it was it was a mixed blessing, yes, because I was quite shocked at what was, what was then happening to the country uh, with, with, with Margaret Margaret Thatcher there. Mind you, if I can add something, you know, although I disliked pretty well every one of Margaret Thatcher's politics, she actually believed in something. This lot we've got now don't seem don't even seem to believe in anything. For sure, um, I'm just thinking. You left a council. Did you leave a conservative-dominated council? Yeah, I was I was a, I was a councillor on, on Westminster Westminster City Council. Yes. Uh, for a solid Labour ward, but it, but it was it was a, a Tory-dominated council, yes. Okay, and then you joined a Tory-dominated House of Commons as well. So I suppose then I'm just thinking your your career began essentially in opposition. In terms of delivering for your your constituents, you know, at local government level, there's obviously um, a responsibility in relation to housing, and that would have had a, a clear impact in terms of issues around immigration and providing housing. Was that a challenge that you had to deal with? At local council level, before you you actually reached um, Westminster. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, it was because um, uh, f- first of all, because l- being a local councillor is all about politics. It's all, all the stuff, and, and I had a very, a very solid, as I say, I had a very solid um, uh, Labour working class constituency in, in Paddington, uh, in, in my ward, in my in my in my ward, <clears throat> and. Um, one of the issues that came up on the council, and the housing problems were always a, a really uh, sharp issue with people desperate to get housed, uh, living either homeless or overcrowded. Uh, and so house, house, housing was one thing. And then, and then when Britain took some Uganda Asians, and when Idi Amin drove them out, um, actually, although it was a Tory council, we agreed after a very tough argument as a councillor, we would we would give some housing priority to some of these Ugandan nations who came to Britain, and that split both parties. But we did it actually. It was quite surprising a Tory council did that. But that was a long time ago when things were easy as regards immigration and refugees. I'm just thinking, you came to the UK. It was 1939, is that right? Uh, uh, July 1939. Okay, and and at that time, Britain took I think it was 10,000 children from Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. Um, and I've seen you in other interviews describe that as generous because that wasn't necessarily replicated by other uh, safe European countries at the time. You, some of your work at Parliament, you um, you pioneered what was known as the Dubs Amendment, um, and that that required um, under Section sixty seven of the Immigration Act twenty sixteen for the government to relocate and support unaccompanied refugee children from Europe. Only 480 arrived under the scheme. I think there was supposed to be 3,000. Is that right? That that should have arrived. Well, it, well, it's it, it, it's slightly more complicated than that. But basically, basically, you're right. I mean, what happened was we had an original figure of 3,000. We discovered, as a background to this, that there were, according to Save the Children, there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe, mainly France, Greece, and Italy, uh, and 10,000 according to Interpol had disappeared 
just imagine one child in Britain disappearing and there's a there's a hunt, everybody's alerted, we look and so on and so forth. Near yeah, 10,000 of the kids have just gone missing. So it was all very shocking. So I put down an amendment to, that we should take 3,000. Uh, and I was criticized for it being too small a number. But then we had to, that was defeated in the Commons the first time because of some parliamentary gobbledygook, uh, which basically um, the Lords can't, if the government doesn't like it, the, Lord, the Lords can't pass amendments which, which, um, which involve expenditure. So when I had a second go, and we won it the second time, uh, uh, we just had just said local authorities that the government should take children uh, in, in conjunction with the, with agreement with the local authorities. Now, look, the 480 was an arbitrary figure invented by the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I thought it was shabby, and I still think it's shabby. And the reason they did it, they said local authorities had no more foster places for children, and therefore that's the limit. Well, we went around with NGOs, Safe Passage and other NGOs. Uh, we talked to local authorities. We asked them. We wrote to them. And we got we got a lot of local authorities who said, yes, of course they could take more children. So it was an artificial constraint, uh, you know, which the government had no right to do, having promised me that they would accept the letter and spirit of my amendment. And I'm just thinking, just in reflecting on that, the wealth, you know, from 1939, taking 10,000 children to 2017, when it was capped at 480 from from the the, the three thousands that was supposed to have been agreed, what changed? What changed over those those years, those decades that caused the UK to abandon that spirit of generosity that was extended in pre just before the Second World War? Yeah, it was a good question. Although there was some opposition even in even, even before the Second World War, but Britain was the only country that took them. Even the Americans said it's additional to quota; they can't do it. So Britain came out of that pretty well. Given they were they were willing to take more, there were there was another train about to leave Prague when the war started. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so what's changed? Well, I think a lot of things have changed. Uh, sadly, uh, I think that the issue of immigration and refugees has become a political football not just in Britain, but in other countries. Uh, I think what, 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 else, what else happened was that um, the government, this present government or the Tory government anyway, decided that they would make it a point of principle to cut down the numbers of people arriving in this country. And the refugees are only a small proportion of the total anyway, but that's by the way. Uh, the government, and, and, and then they wanted a hostile environment. And gradually the government's message was, you know, we don't want these people. Mm-hmm. And that was accentuated during the Brexit referendum. When yes, a lot of the arguments, yes. and I spent a lot of time door knocking for Remain, but um, a lot of the arguments of the people who wanted to leave were about Im- immigration. After, after all, Boris Johnson said that if we didn't leave the EU, uh, 80,000, 80 million Turks were poised to enter Britain, a complete mm-hmm. fabrication. And that all, that all contrived to build up an atmosphere of hostility. And the trouble is, when people arrive and the government's policies we don't really want these people, then people in local communities sometimes, sadly, take their cue from the government and start being hostile as well. So it's a very sorry picture. But I think uh, some of the more recent hostility to new arrivals stems from the stems from the atmosphere generated by the Brexit referendum. And just, you know, thinking about the, the behaviour of, of, the, of the government, Cameron's government. So 20, 2010, the big society austerity, a decade of austerity, that was all badged up euphemis- sorry, euphemistically under the, the big society 
um, kind of headline and they, the, the, the sloganeering of we're all in this together. So when the government was trying to sell a decade of austerity to the public, they sugarcoated it. When the government was trying to deal with the immigration issue, they did no such thing. They, they intentionally described a hostile environment. So from my point of view, I suppose what I'm thinking of is what does that tell us about the UK public and what the government, at least what the government thought of the UK public's willingness to take those messages. They sugarcoat austerity and they make the hostile environment, it's like being hit over the head with a hammer. It's the least subtle message you could ever have. So there's obviously a, a perception that they were playing to a base. There's at least significant support in the country that they could sell such a blunt and callous policy as the hostile environment without having to even think about how it was presented or more than that, presenting it in the most blunt, callous way possible. Well, yet, 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 can, can I say, Andy, it, it, it's it's not quite it's not quite as bad as you're saying in, in every way. I still believe, despite all that's happened and despite hostile environment and, and that, I still believe if one puts the argument about why we should be more welcoming to unaccompanied child refugees, on the whole, I think more more people in this country accept that as an argument than remain opposed to it. I can't persuade everybody, but I still believe public opinion has an important part to play. And I think public opinion had an influence. When people saw uh, uh, photographs, newscasts, news reports on television of people drowning in the Mediterranean, when they had that tragic story of that Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, Mm -hmm. found lying drowned on the Mediterranean beach, I think that made people realize there are other things going on. And I, I believe that British people are essentially still humanitarian, not all but most, and there's still a willingness to welcome child refugees. Uh, now, uh, I, I say that because of support I get, because of the pressure there was on on, on uh, government MPs to, to support my amendment, uh, which is why eventually the government conceded because we're going to lose a vote the second time in the House of Commons. I, I say all that, and I still believe it's true, but it doesn't mean there isn't a hostile environment. It doesn't mean there's something we've, we've got to take on. It's still an argument. But I believe, I've always said, I believe firmly, that if we want to be welcoming to refugees, we've got to explain to the British public what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important and why it's in accordance with our basic humanitarian principles. Yeah, so if we were if we were kind of to, to mock up that argument, then Alf, so just take me as somebody who's opposed to, to immigration. I'll just I'll make it clear that I'm playing a role here. This is not my view. <laughs> so so say I was to argue Britain is a small island. This is this is an argument which we'll hear very frequently. Britain is a small island. There, there are clearly limits yeah. to the physical space. We already have huge levels of, of demand for public services um, with demand often outstripping supply. We have done in the past our bit um, uh, to accept people seeking asylum. But, you know, we need to stop. Uh, we've done enough. How, how would you engage someone with that mindset? I'm thinking if someone's listening to this podcast and they encounter that mindset, how would you seek to work with an individual who, who, who that's their point of view? Well, the number, the, the, the number of points I, I, would, I would say to such an individual, I have had letters from people and emails saying those, those sort of things. I would say, first of all, um, we're a rich country. And if local authorities uh, are, are cash-trapped, it is because of the policies of austerity imposed upon them by the government, and we're a rich enough country to look after to look after kids that are here as well as refugee kids that are arriving. We're, we're, we're rich enough. Secondly, that this is something fundamentally humanitarian. That we're dealing with kids who've been through the most terrible experiences, 
what do I say to a, a Syrian boy who who told me that he'd his father had been blown up in front of him by a bomb either in Aleppo or Damascus? What can I say to the people who fled for fear, uh, who, who are frightened, who are uh, who've had long and terrible journeys to get to Calais? And you know, most of them don't even come to Britain. Most of them go to Germany and Sweden and so on uh, and Italy. Uh, so we're talking about small numbers, and I, I think it's a basic thing. And if we can't take what is a very small number of child refugees, we can't do that. We're even a shabbier country than I think we are, and, and, and we want human generosity. And when they do come, they're welcome. You know, the, the good thing, good things that happen with refugees. I tell you, saw you later on about a very positive experience, a really great, great evening we had with a bunch of refugee kids. So you know, there are good things that happen. And tell us, tell us, Mike. Tell us, tell us the story. I'll say now. Now. Okay. Yeah. So, so this was this was just before the pandemic, and uh, and this is this is of course for football fans. Fulham and Chelsea football clubs each have a foundation, and at Fulham football ground, the, the, we decided they'd have an evening of football training, and Guy Lineker sponsored that. Uh, you know, household name, great great guy, Guy Lineker, and so we had about twenty of these FG kids. I didn't play, but I did walk on a hallowed pitch. Of a, of, a, of, a, of a football team. Normally, I just sit on the sit, sit or stand behind the goal or something, uh, or sit these days. Uh, and these kids had a time of their lives playing football. And the whole point was football is something international. I'm sorry there are no girls playing, but that's another argument. But, but at least we had, the, we, had, we, had, we had these boys, and there were Afghan boys and Syrian boys and, and, and so on. And they had, the time, they had an evening of their lives just being given a bit of football training on this pitch. And the idea was to normalize it all. These are just yes. these are just normal kids, and the essential thing we have to do in local communities is to is to say these are normal kids. They want to do normal things, and we've got to give them a chance to do it because they're like any other kids when when they, when they're allowed to be normal. And I I think that that evening uh, full and football ground was symbolic of something we're trying to do, which is to normalise kids and give them a chance to be just like any other kids in this country. And we're seeing that in Northern Ireland, even with you know. Um... Uh, asylum seeking kids taking up uh, Gaelic games, you know, really engaging with with cultural activities in Northern Ireland. Just curious, out of curiosity, Alpha, are you are you a film fan? Well, I am now. <laughs> you are now. You are now. No, look, look, look. Honestly, like a lot of people, I spend a lot of my childhood in Manchester. Yes. Okay. And at that time, Man City were the top dogs, so I supported the underground. And I was Man United, oh, and that right, goes okay. back a long way. And okay. whoever whoever became a United fan because they were the underdog. Not many, not many. Um, I was just thinking because I know, I know in your background, um, you spent a little bit of time in Northern Ireland, and I would have thought that you know that brief period you spent as a child here would have actually probably been enough to qualify you to play for Jack Charlton's Republic of Ireland side in the nineties, which um, was was mostly Englishmen. Um, well, I'll tell you something. I, I was once in. Um, I discovered when I was a minister uh, with, with Mamulam in, in in Northern Ireland. In the in the period up to the Good Friday Agreement and beyond, and I, and I discovered quite accidentally that if England were playing Ireland in Dublin, the duty minister was allowed to go and watch it. So, oh. uh, uh, <laughs> and everybody in the office was envious. And some of the, some of the officials said to me, "And uh, can they ask me a question? Who am I, who am I supporting?" And, and I said, "Well, I'm supporting Ireland, of course, because there are five Ulster players in the in, in the Ireland team. So, of course, uh, unfortunately, um, um, Ireland lost. Oh dear, in Dublin oh dear. that day." And you said you said yourself you identify as British but not English. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I can't. English is a, English is a bit so specific. I, I can't. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. I I came as an immigrant. Uh, I came as a refugee, uh, and and uh, I all I can say is I'm British. What else can I say? Yes.
I can't identify as English. I, I wouldn't work. Yes. It's interesting talking about the sport. When I was a wee lad, I remember talking to my dad about this. And the way I worked in Northern Ireland with my upbringing was you supported Northern Ireland or the Republic. You know, so you got two teams for the football. Yeah. You always supported Ireland in the rugby. The only time you're allowed to really choose England as your first choice was in the test cricket, because at that time there was no Irish test cricket. I know that's changed, you know, yeah. um, but yes, identity. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to tell you a football story. Another mm-hmm. football story. When I, during the time I was a minister in, in Northern Ireland, uh, I think both um, Ireland and England had got quite far in the World Cup, football World Cup, okay? And, um, you know, all this business about flags and emblems and so on in Northern Ireland. And I was driving past a council block in London, uh, just just back back in London, and, and on a, the balcony of a council flat, there were two flags flying: the Ice Trickler and the Union Jack from the same balcony. Oh, wow. And my my regret was I didn't take a photograph of that <laughs> and stick it through every door in Belfast, saying there is a better way. There is a better way, indeed, indeed. I'm just going to bring us back, Alf. We were talking about how to deal with those difficult, those challenging conversations and, and those very vital conversations about engaging individuals who have concerns about levels of immigration. So I'm just kind of moving on from that. You, you fled Czechoslovakia prior to the Second World War when there was Nazi occupation. And we have seen, you know, over the last number of years, there's been a really worrying rise in far-right sentiment across the UK. Uh, I'm not drawing a direct comparison, but... I'm just, there's a concern, there's a valid concern that the UK's withdrawal from the EU and the ending of freedom of movement, it's going to serve to embolden rather than placate those with anti-immigration views. Where somebody has very, very set, very hard, very anti-immigrant views, do you think it's possible to enter a meaningful discussion? Or is it really better just to focus um, where there is fertile ground and where somebody might be open to considering, you know, it's, it's really this argument is to how much should we be engaging with people that are fundamentally opposed to, a, to what we're trying to achieve? I think, I think that's a difficult one because, because you can divide the, um, the hostile camp, people in the hostile camp, into ones who are absolutely hostile and who wouldn't be shifted at all, and the ones who have got concerns but need to have their concerns met and talked about. Uh, and that category, I think, is a larger one, and and they're they're the ones they're the ones one, one, one can talk to. I mean, doing the referendum, and I was in very much uh, knocking on doors in in the, the Brexit referendum. I, I was knocking on doors in in in, in the Remain area, about seven percent Remain. Nevertheless, woman, a woman said to me, she's she, she's going to vote leave, and I said, why? And she said, uh, and she said because of, because of immigrants. And I said, to her, well, look. I, I was in local hospital. I had a small procedure, just a day procedure, a few weeks ago, and everybody who treated me was an immigrant. Everybody, from doctors, mm-hmm. there's an Iranian doctor, there was an Irish nurse, there was a Portuguese radiographer, all of them. It was a very small thing. I said, where would I be without them? And she said, she said to me, ah, it's not the ones that are here already that bother me. It's the further ones that are going to come. Where she was echoing the campaign by Boris Johnson and, and Farage. Yeah opposing it and that was the echo and and so when political leaders key political people well, leaders Nigel Farage with Boris Johnson when they make statements like that they resonate with local people they resonate with ordinary people and we've got to have political leadership uh, uh, to say to say why it is that being humanitarian and taking a small number of refugees or taking a number of refugees is is a positively good thing to do 
But there's got to be some leadership on that. You can't just you yes. can't just have the loud voices saying we don't want these people, and nobody's speaking speaking up the other way. And those voices, then, I'm thinking just from individuals. You are um, you have a peerage. You're in the Lords. Um, in terms of then individuals that are elected to the Commons who risk losing seats um, if they if they advance policies that are seen as challenging or unpopular, who, who in the Commons do you see that's actually uh, making that? Uh, making that argument on behalf of um, vulnerable immigrants and and asylum seekers. Oh, oh, there are, oh, there are, there, are, there are quite a lot of people, even even one two conservative MPs are doing it. No, 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't write people off like that. Uh, I think there are, but you know the, the you know the the government here had a big majority, uh, a very strong majority, uh, and some of the people elected in what they called the red wall seats, the former Labour seats yes. in the Midlands and North of England, uh, they're much more hardline. I've listened. Uh, listen and watch debates in the Commons just recently, and it is those people who have been particularly hardline. The more traditional um, government supporters haven't been so hardline, and maybe that's just a snapshot of of one or two debates that that I watched. But 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 but, but certainly certainly there are different lots of people around, and they're the ones who are totally hostile, and there's some who are in politics, and then there are the ones who are, who are more balanced and more reasonable. Uh, and I wish there were more of the second category in the Tory party, but there are some. And the Labour Party, the Labour Party has been pretty good. But I mean, somebody like Yvette Cooper, who's chaired the Home Affairs Committee, has been absolutely outstandingly good on, on, on refugees. Keir Starmer has been good on refugees. Jeremy Corbyn was good on Jeremy Corbyn, they were all good on refugees. I think we should, we, should, we should acknowledge that. There have been some very strong voices in support of refugees in, 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 the, in the House of Commons. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, not so many in some of the other parties. The SNP have been good on it. The Lib Dems have been good on it. Uh, but um, Tories, some of them, some of them, not so many. I'm just thinking of constituencies where there is the greatest levels of support and constituencies where there's the greatest level of opposition. Do you tend to find the opposition more where there is high levels of immigration or areas where there actually isn't that high level of immigration, but there's a, a huge amount of fear? You, you, you've got it. That some of the most uh, hostile feelings against refugees in areas where you don't see a black face <laughs> not that all refugees have black faces but uh, but certainly as, a, as an indicator but some of the strongest opposition is in areas like that whereas places like london which are much more mixed in in ways in these ways are uh, i think have got a much more tolerant and welcoming attitude to refugees it's a big generalization but i yes. think there's something in it and and uh, and i think london is such a has got such a Wonderful mixed, mixed, uh, mixed communities and so on, and 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 Londoners, I think, are more tolerant because they accept this as this is the way we are. Yes, I read something in the week. Actually, it was a piece in the Guardian. It was talking about the challenges that Labour were facing, and it was commenting on those red wall seats. The 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 concern being that the um, Labour's being perceived as a as a London based party now that the 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 the, the, the drive of the yeah. party is based in London the policies focus in London and it's there's a real need to re-engage with those northern seats if Labour are going to win them back. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, and 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 uh, and although I was talking about knocking on doors in London and although I you know, I represented a London seat, uh, I, I say I have spent some of my childhood in, in the north of England in Manchester and so on, but I think you've put your finger on a really big political problem. That, uh, that that Britain has become much too London centric, uh, and there's too much concentration on London, uh, uh, and people in the Midlands and particularly in the North have the right to feel neglected. And I think I think we need far more devolution, uh, the devolution of power from Westminster to the local authorities, the mayors of Manchester and 
and in Newcastle and Solmey far more devolution. Uh, the powers people people there see it as to, London is totally remote and not caring much about them. And I I think that's what if I was listing the political challenges for uh, for, for, for a Labour government, I would say that is one of the most important ones of how to deal with the imbalance and the perceived imbalance of power. Mind you, um, Lisa Nandy, who's also got these issues uh, now as Shadow Foreign Secretary, uh, she said, it isn't so much North against South as cities against towns. Mm -hmm. And it is the towns, particularly in the North of England, who are feeling more neglected uh, than perhaps Manchester and Liverpool. That's her her view. But certainly we've got to be careful. It isn't just North and South, it is also the smaller towns, which are mainly in the Midlands and the North. Uh, The smaller towns have people in who feel it the thing that the world has just passed them by and they're not getting the help and the attention, the support and the investment and the jobs that they're entitled to. The irony being that, you know, devolution to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, it wasn't limited as a proposal to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. There was proposals for greater devolution within England um, that, that were opposed. As, as I understand, Dominic Cummings cut his teeth on the on the anti-devolution referendum for, was it the northeast of England? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, I think that wasn't that wasn't terribly well handled. And the argument against that was put was was do you really want another bunch of politicians? To which most human beings said, "No, thank you." So it wasn't handled. So I wasn't. I wasn't. The other problem is that whereas Northern Ireland is an entity. I mean, there are people in Northern Ireland who don't want to be an entity, but that's a different argument. We, 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 we don't have time entity. for that today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'd be oh yeah, no, sorry, sorry, uh, just, yeah. just trying to be funny. Um, Forget, forget no, no. But, but the trouble is, in England, there are no obvious boundaries to regions. If you're going to have have um, have devolution in that sense, then there's got to be a sense of belonging. And you know, people don't belong to East Anglia particularly. People don't belong to the East Midlands. People don't don't belong to Devon and Cornwall in quite in that way. They do a bit in Cornwall. So um, you, you know, so I I wasn't arguing that we should have that we should have regional assemblies, elected assemblies, as John Prescott was arguing. Uh, in, in the case in the northeast, uh, I, I was arguing we should devolve power. And one can devolve power to local authorities, you know, or groups yes. of local authorities. There are other ways of yes. doing it than, than having a, another elected layer on, on, on top of what we've got now. Sorry, and that's something I hadn't appreciated until now. That that idea of you know identity, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, for better or worse, that's not the same as trying to devolve to generic regions of of England, northeast, northwest. Yeah, yeah. thanks for 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 clarifying that. Um. Alf, I have a question. This is quite a big question, um, but it, it, it kind of it, it harks back to the the legacy of of empire. You know, so Britain, the legacy of Britain, Britain colonized huge parts of the world, and through that colonization, English spread globally as a, as a language. And I think I think I'm right here. English is the third most spoken language in the world, but it's the most taught language in the world. So I think it's a, a, an estimated 1.5 billion learners. You know, learned as a, as a second or third language. To what extent do you think the desire for individuals to claim asylum in the UK rather than the first safe country they reach when fleeing war or persecution, to what extent do you think that's a consequence of the legacy of empire and the ubiquitousness of English as a, as a second or third language? Well, of course, some of the people who want to come here, like Syrians, don't have much of a tradition of the British Empire. If anything, it's it's the French Empire. But but still, no, I, I think the language, the language is important. I, I think... There are people who want to come to Britain to stay refugees, and they want to come for a number of reasons. I occasionally talk to them and discuss it with them. Uh, one is English, because they feel they can they can adjust they can, uh, if they speak some English. And because they speak some English, or some of them do, then they also know more about this country because of international media and, and, and so on, uh, and they can pick up 
what what's happening. So so that's that that that's that I think is is part of it. Other part of it is education linked to English. But if they had education here, then then they have an affinity and and they and they want to come back. Uh, I think also, um, and this is very odd, but I was at a hostel in Calais for refugee kids run by Jesuits, basically. And I was talking to some of them as to why. And, and, and they said this, they said, you know, we want to go to England because we think the British police would treat us better than the French police are treating us here. Now, I'm, I'm not anti-French. I, I, I like the French. I like France, the country. Uh, but but this was said. And, and now I know that the, the jungle in Calais has been pulled down, but uh, I've been several times to see the refugees sleeping under under the trees or under tarpaulins in the Calais area. And the police are hassling them. Uh, and they take away their sleeping bags and their tents and so on. And so they say, well, we think we'll be better treated in England. The other attraction of Britain is, of course, it, we, we, have, we don't have many controls once people get here, so they can get jobs much more easily. The job market is more accessible, and there are more jobs going, uh, maybe not during the pandemic, but before the pandemic. And so there's a sense that, that they, can fit in, they can fit in better here. Another thing is, of course, refugees go to where the other refugees are from their own background, so they tend to go there as well. But can I say this? Germany is Germany took a million Syrians uh, after the Syrian war. Germany's taken far more than we have. You know, this is a, we're talking about very small numbers, although yes. we're taking more than 480 because we, are, we have other schemes for taking them, but they're still small schemes. But I, I mean, Angela Merkel, that, that, that has played out in her favor now but it, it was looking pretty dicey for it at one point wasn't it based on you know that that generosity and willingness to to accept the syrian refugees yeah and she pleaded with other countries to take to share responsibility for these people and nobody else would we didn't the other countries didn't and and the result was that she then faced a political a political problem and it weakened her politically with an extreme right-wing party adf doing uh, AFD doing doing so well, which is why I said you've got to keep public opinion on side. And we've seen extreme right-wing parties in Germany, in Austria, uh, in Italy, and so on, capitalising on opposition to refugees and using it cynically and shame shamefully to get votes. And then there's the Northern League in Italy, for example. I mean, their increase, their significant increase in support over the last number of years has, has largely been driven by how they have been able to exploit the refugee crisis. I remember reading about the Northern League back when I was studying politics as this sort of fairly fringe part of Italian politics. You know, it's been a real, they've really capitalised. Yeah, well, that's been the problem. And of course, there's some countries like Hungary and um uh, and uh, well, particularly Hungary. Uh, I think Hungary most of all. And and they they have said openly, refugees are not our problem. We're only interested in white Christians. So it's been. Uh, uh, and I think Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia have all been four countries, which, to their shame, uh, have been have been very opposed to, um, uh, to to refugees. Which is why when the European Union has tried to have a. Uh, uh, shared responsibility policy, uh, those countries say we're not going to be part of it. And there are tensions, particularly between Hungary and Poland uh, and Brussels. And I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a committed European. I, I, I think Britain leaving the EU is, is, is a complete tragedy. Uh, but, but I believe in Europe and I believe in European solidarity. And I'm, I'm sorry parts of the EU are not showing that element of solidarity, which I think should characterize the EU. That attitude, though, of you know the Orbán government in, in in Hungary, the attitude that they only want to accept white Christians. I mean, it's callous, but it's deeply ironic, given that Christ himself wasn't wasn't white European, 
and was a, was himself an asylum seeker. Yeah, of course. And, and the other thing is, of course, that after again when Engens had a revolution in fifty six, and Engens fled, they were welcomed into Western Europe. We all welcomed them and said. And I've said to the Hungarian ambassador, I said, look, we welcome your people. You don't have to welcome other people. Oh, he said, that's different. So it's it's disappointing that Europe as a whole is not showing uh, that overall approach. Now, it got a bit better after the fire on Lesbos in Moria, a place I visited about a year before the fire. Um, uh, uh, the Greek government appealed. And then countries did... Quite quite a lot of countries said yes, we'll take refugees, uh, and, and they've taken some of them. They've shown some international solidarity. We've taken a handful under the family reunion scheme, which will die a death at the end end of this month. The EU family reunion scheme. Yes, yes, and it's it is it's terrible that these individuals are fleeing tragedy. They're fleeing conflict. They're fleeing war. It takes a second tragedy then to actually motivate. You you mentioned the fire to to actually then motivate some sympathy uh, in yeah. other countries to to, to yeah. accept to accept them. Uh, Andy, can I just go back to social workers? Of course, you can yes, please. Um, you know, I um, Hammersmith Council has been particularly good on on, on taking refugees, and 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 they 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 they, they offered to take. Quite, they've taken quite a few, and the, the social workers in Hammersmith took a took a took their own time off to go to Calais to go to the jungle in Calais and to help identify refugees that would qualify to mm-hmm. come to Britain and so on. And they took the time off, and then we had a great uh, reception uh, in Hammersmith Town Hall for them. The great people, but they did it all, you know, and they're very much in the front line of supporting refugees, uh, I, you know. Uh, and all of the country, they're the ones who are providing that support and they're making it possible so that when kids go and are fostered, it's social workers who are there providing the backup yes. and the help. But Alpha, it's it's about seeing that human need. It's about seeing that suffering. And I think this is the problem. You know, when you think of how so much of our media covers these issues and you were talking about the, the, the Brexit campaign and how the messaging was so cynical, people are fed this information about, you know, the danger of the immigrant you know, but it, there's no humanity in it. When you see the plight of an individual who's suffering, who needs help, human beings want to respond and help for the most part. And that's where I suppose the challenge is. It's about trying to communicate on a mass level the humanity of people that are in need. That's a harder message to communicate than the fear and danger um, message that which is so prevalent. Well, it is, and yet a lot of people. Uh, look, I, I haven't done a survey, but but I'm just judging by responses and emails and messages I get, and so on. A lot of people are actually sympathetic to the idea of refugees. I, when I was over um, over in in in, um, uh, in Northern Ireland, one visit, I talked to people both in in Belfast and in Derry about this, and you know, and they said we're willing to. There was no executive at the time, and they said we can't do much, but we're willing to take refugee children. We certainly are, and and what is it in? In Derry, it was the Eastern Health Board or whatever it's called, Western Health Board. They said, you know, somebody from that body, they said they're sure they would take refugees. So we're still pushing. But I think on the whole, people are, not on the whole, a lot of people are still supportive of refugees. You know, there is an argument going on as to what they should be doing. But I'm always delighted at the support there is for refugees. Uh, and the hostility is there. Yes, I get a few hostile messages, but um, but the, the, the supportive messages far outweigh the, the hostile ones. Coming back to the social work role then, 
you know, an issue which is often not considered in the public discussion surrounding this, um, the, the, the debate around asylum seekers and refugees, is the trauma that many people seeking asylum, particularly children, have experienced. So if you're, you mentioned the, the individual you spoke to, the child who'd seen their father blown up in Syria by a bomb, you know, that is going to be, that, that child is going to have significant um, trauma from that experience. I mean, it's, it's unspeakable. The UK, we have a, a ridiculously underfunded and overstretched mental health sector. Has any discussion, have you been involved in any discussion about actually then adequately resourcing or further resourcing mental health to, to address the trauma that, that refugees and, and um, asylum seekers will have, will have experienced? Well, look, by a happy coincidence, I'm, I'm, I've got a good response to that. Um, I was offered by the Royal College of Psychiatry a doctor who's halfway to being a qualified psychiatrist, and I was given her for a year. And, uh, and I gave her a project to do, and she was brilliant. The project was to look at the mental health support in local communities, for mental health support for, for, for refugee, refugees, particularly child refugees. Uh, uh, and and uh, I've got her to after report, and I've just got to finalize it and let it come out. Very interesting. It doesn't change the world. But there is clearly a patchwork of provision. In some areas, it's pretty good. In some areas, they rely upon social workers. There's no specialized skill uh, necessarily. I mean, social workers may not be skilled in this. They may or may not be, but it's asking a lot to add, add mental health skills to the other skills. Well, there will be there will be specific mental health social workers, though it's not a skill that all social workers would train yeah, in. That's yeah. right. Therefore, therefore, but other social workers were not mental health social workers are still having to step in and, and provide support. There were two uh, in South London about three years ago, two refugee uh, teenagers killed themselves. So what they've gone through is absolutely shocking. And what I'm hoping my report will do, a uh, small, small scale thing, we talk 20 or 30 local authorities uh, and voluntary organizations and so on. We talked about what I'm hoping it will do, it will highlight the issue and will indicate some possible way, way, ways, ways forward. For example, there ought to be some resource where social workers in an area who want some advice on mental health issues for, for, the, for, the, for their clients, uh, where they can turn to. There isn't a sort of central body that provides that support. So there's that. There are some NGOs, the Refugee Council, uh, Freedom from Torture, they provide help, but it's, it's limited. And there is a patchwork of provision. And I think one needs to say, it shouldn't be a patchwork of provision. We should. We should see this as, as, a, as a real issue. On the other hand, I'll give you a little story. One lovely quote in, in the report, um, we mustn't foist mental health needs on people. You know, if they don't want them, they don't want them. And this, this, this same boy said, I said, I don't want to be a mental health patient. I just want to play football and be like other kids. <laughs> and he said, so don't treat me like, a, like I have mental health problems. So one has to be very careful. It's a very difficult issue. And the other, one of the other problems with mental health is language. Mental health is a very, is very sensitive area, and there are nuances in language. And if it's got to be done through an interpreter, one loses those nuances. So there yes. is an issue about how one can provide mental health support across the language barrier, which is a really difficult one. And I'm just even thinking in terms of, you know, there's still, it is being addressed, but there's been a lot of stigma around mental health, you know, in the UK. That stigma may exist to a greater extent in other in other cultures, and that needs to be there needs to be a real cultural sensitivity to dealing with those issues as well. Um, Alf, the the question actually the question I meant to, to lead off with, and I, I'm aware we're coming up to the end of our time together, so I'm, I'm going to actually ask this now um, at the end rather than what should have been the start. 
You led efforts to ensure the government's flagship immigration legislation, the Immigration and Social Security Coordination EU Withdrawal Act. You led efforts to ensure that would enable unaccompanied children in the EU to continue to be relocated with close relatives in the UK following the ending of EU freedom of movement rules. So it was supported in the Lords. It didn't receive sufficient backing in the Commons. Can you tell us now what's going to happen once um, freedom of movement ends on the 31st of December? Okay, right. Because although, uh, by the way, the amendment that was after my name, I never called it that. It was the media. I wouldn't be so so pompous as to call an amendment after my name, however. Um, but that that amendment was for kids who had no uh, family here. The more important provision, because it affects more people, more young people, is the Dublin Treaty, an EU treaty, under which a child in one EU country has the right to jo- ask to join relatives in another EU country. So uh, uh, a Syrian boy in France could ask to, could ask to join uh, uh, his uncle or his, his parents in Birmingham, for example. Uh, and under that provision, we got far more over here, not many, but we got far more over here than under, under my amendment. And my concern was that that would stop, that would die a death when we left it, when the tra- transitional period after leaving the EU was over. So we tried, I got an amendment into, into the 2017 Act, which eventually got through both houses, that, that Britain should negotiate to continue the provisions of the family union, the family union provisions of the, of, of the Dublin Treaty, even after we left the EU. And that was passed eventually. And then in the 2019 Act, the government took it out. They just uh, rescinded that. So I then tried to get it back in under the latest immigration bill, uh, and it went. So it was passed in the Lords several times, defeated, defeated in the Commons, um, and that's why it's that's why it's stuck. We got some agreement. The government would review all this, uh, and they uh, uh, and they would review the provisions for child refugees and, and the family union, and they would do that, uh, and that there would be another bit of legislation coming forward, which we might again have a go at. So we're in a bit of a limbo, but the government have said that they have still other ways of taking uh, family child refugees for family reunion purposes. Unfortunately, those are very weak, and we can't take action if they don't do it. So I've written again to one of the Home Office ministers saying, you know, what are you doing about all this? You gave certain undertakings, where are you? Mm-hmm. So I wrote that only a couple of days ago. But, but I can assure you that we'll go on. Uh, we're absolutely determined with the NGOs like Safe Passage who are working very hard on this issue. We're going to go on, we're going to push the government. And in the new year, if we find that family union is not happening because they haven't got the Dublin Treaty anymore, uh, we shall still push the government as to what's happening. And we're going to work very hard. And we're going to get another amendment down if we can to any further legislation to do that. So the argument is there. But, you know, we have a hostile, you talk about a hostile environment, there's a hostile government. You know, and and unfortunately, we just have to battle. But all I can say is a lot of us are firmly committed to going on with this. It isn't over. And we'll go on pushing it and pushing it and pushing it because these young people have the right, particularly if they've got family here. They've worked, they've they've travelled halfway across the world to Calais because they want to join their family members. That's one of the biggest incentives for them because they've got somewhere to go. I I had an argument with them in the home office some time ago about there was a Syrian, Syrian boy who was living in Lancaster. And and he and his his um his brother was in Greece. And can we get him over here? And the older one said, "I've got accommodation for him. I've got to look after him. I'll even pay his fare and so on." Eventually, we got him over. You know, it took a lot of doing and phone calls and messages to people in Greece and so on. We got him. That was one, and he was only one. But all I would say is that even if we get one child to safety, to join their family, 
have a foster family, one child for safety, that is one victory for, for us all, even one. So we shouldn't knock it if its numbers are small, but we want the numbers to be larger. Are you optimistic for 2021, Alf? Oh, dear. Well, I'm very depressed about Brexit and the consequences of Brexit. You know, we haven't we haven't even come to terms yet with uh, what a problem that's going to be. And uh, the poor people in our communities are going to suffer more than the better off. And it's going to be damaging and jobs are going to be lost and so on. Uh, so to that extent, I'm not optimistic. In terms of refugees, look, I have to believe we, we can still push. I have to believe that, that as a country, we can still do better. And, uh, you know, we, we've made the campaign for child refugees non-political party. Uh, you know, I've always sought to get support across the political spectrum. But it's not the property of one political party. And I will go on doing that. And a lot of my friends, we're all committed to going on doing that. So we have to have some belief that we can achieve something. Not too optimistic, uh, but, but belief we can achieve something for child refugees. Uh, but for, for but the Brexit, if if we crash out without a deal, it seems it seems pretty pretty likely uh, from the news this morning. If we crash out without a deal, then I'm depressed for the country. I'm depressed for Northern Ireland. I'm depressed for Scotland, and Wales. I'm depressed for England. Uh, we're all going to lose out very badly. Uh, but, but but as far as refugees are concerned, look, I remain hopeful because uh, we've put a, a lot of political colleagues and I have put effort into this. And the effort has worked a bit. Not worked as much as possible, it worked a bit. And I'm on a committee with uh, European countries, and together we're pushing this. Uh, we're working hard, uh, EU and non-EU non European countries, uh, and the OSCE uh, Parliamentary Assembly, Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Look, I believe we, we, can, we can achieve things. I think I'm optimistic enough in the sense for child refugees, we can achieve things in the coming year. We're determined to do it, and we're going to do it. Alf, thank you so much for your time. I found this really, really interesting. I know everyone who listens to this is going to find it really interesting as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, just to say thank you. And, I, and to say thank you, uh, I don't know how many of your audience be social workers, but to say thank you, thank you for, uh, for social workers organising this, for giving me a chance to have a say. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your questions. And but well, I'm grateful to the social workers up and down the country who are doing a fantastic job. I and mean, as a local councillor, I knew that in the day-to-day -day work they were doing. I was I was on the social services committee and so on when I was a councillor in, in Westminster City Council. But but the social workers have done a tremendous job for refugees. I've met social workers; they're doing it. They're showing a level of commitment over and above the call of duty, and I think that's terrific. So can I say a big thank you? Thank you very much, Alf. And thank you above all for the work you're doing. I think that's terrific and I'm grateful.